Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ave Regina Celorum, Ave Domina Angelorum, Salve Radic, Salve Porta, Ex Qua Mundo Lux Estorta, Gaude Virgo Gloriosa, Super Omnes Speciosa, Vale Ovalde Decora, Et pro nobis Christum exora. Mary, Queen of Heaven, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Take it away, Chris. So great. Um, I have too much material. I apologize if we don't get through it all. Uh, last week, we uh, talked about women saints who were favored with visions, locutions, interior consolations, and, and, and then as a consequence of these, uh, formal recognition on the liturgical calendar or formal recognition of a pious practice uh, by, by the church uh, took place. Um, and we had a question at the end of last week, which was very good, and I kind of miffed it, but um, so I want another go. Uh, and it was why are religious favored with these internal consolations, the, these, these revelations of the deepest desires of the heart of our Lord and the heart of his mother. Um, and I said that part of the answer it, it reveals itself in a, in a reading that's uh, in the Vespers for um, common of virgins. And, it, and I was trying to remember what it was. And I said Hebrews, which was a horrible guess. Of course, it's Corinthians chapter seven, which is uh, St. Paul's uh, defense of consecrated virginity. Um, but the particular line that appears in the Vespers is, or verses uh, chapter seven, 32 through 34, the unmarried man is busy with the Lord's affairs concerning with pleasing the Lord. The virgin, indeed, any unmarried woman is concerned with the things the Lord in pursuit of holiness of body and spirit. Uh, so I think this is, I, I mean, I don't know that we need to go on. That's the scriptural evidence, but uh, let's develop a little bit more. Through a vow, women religious are espoused to our Lord. So they enjoy a particular relationship. The person who consecrates himself or herself to God in the single state is embracing a vocation which is divide, defined by a radical commitment to God alone. Um, 
and 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 this vocation is superior to the married life. This is the teaching of the church. But I will say, I mean, I'm a married person, and I know there are married persons watching. A, a properly ordered society consecrates uh, the reproductive and childbearing or child rearing functions of a society. So marriage, um, and it balances these with consecrated virginity. And, and in your handout, there's a great quote from. Uh, I, I gave quotes from John Paul, from Pope Pius XII, from the Catechism, on on the on consecrated virginity as evidence that this is doctrinally defined by the Church, uh, but as a superior vocation. But historically or sociologically speaking, there's this wonderful quote from Christopher Dawson, a favorite historian of mine, also on your handout, and it's in the Patriarchal Family in History. Uh, which is an essay in his Dynamics of World History. And this is worth hearing. For in a Catholic civilization, the patriarchal ideal is counterbalanced by the ideal of virginity. The family, for all its importance, does not control the whole existence of its members. The spiritual side of life belongs to a spiritual society in which all authority is reserved to a celibate class. Thus, in one of the most important aspects of life, the sexual relation is transcended and husband and wife stand on an equal footing. I believe that this is the chief reason why the feminine element has achieved fuller expression in Catholic culture and why even at the present day, the feminine revolt against the restrictions of family life so, is so much less marked in Catholic society than elsewhere. Now, sure enough, Dawson is writing 100 years ago, but... I mean, the whole world's going off the rails now, including Catholic societies or Catholic countries. But but there it is. There's the sociological or, or historical explanation. The second paragraph is worth your time, and I and I won't read it all. But Dawson goes on to observe that in Protestant Europe, the Reformation lets go of the ideal of virginity. And as a consequence, you have the destruction of the monasteries and the Puritan spirit is nourished by the Old Testament. And so what evolves is not so much patriarchy, but patriarchalism, right? Which makes the family the religious as well as the social basis of society. This paragraph, I think, my friends, is well worth dwelling on because Dawson says that it's within this patriarchal society or hyper patriarchal, we might say, in which uh, the economic order, which now threatens the family and today threatens the family, um, grows. Industrialism grows up not in the continental centers of urban culture, but in the remote districts of rural England, in the home of nonconformist weavers and iron workers, for example. So valuable and insightful word, word, words there from Christopher Dawson on the on the value, on the on the sociological value, if you will, of consecrated virginity to, to society. But I wanted to take another whack at that question. And, 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 and I think this is the teaching of the church. And this explains why women religious are favored with these kinds of interior consolations, locutions. They are spiritually espoused. They made that complete dedication to Christ uh, in a way that a married woman 
frankly, is unable to. Um, so, th so, so there we go. This is, again, this is the chief reason why the feminine element has achieved fuller expression in Catholic culture. And I think that's a good point of departure for this evening's thoughts, uh, which are tonight devoted to four especially wise women. So the flowering of the feminine in Catholic culture, uh, in Catholic history, so much so that the church calls each one a doctor of the church. They are, uh, in order of their being named doctors of the church, not in order of history, um, Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Teresa Luzu, and Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, Teresa of Avila is a doctor of the church uh, for one week longer than Catherine of Siena, um, both named in 1970 by Paul VI. Teresa of Avila on 27 September uh, and Catherine of Siena on 4 October. Uh, even though Catherine of Siena in the economy of salvation, we could say, was a doctor of the church for 200 years longer than Teresa of Avila. But anyway, there is some fussing among like some of the trads about, you know, can it, not all, but and even a tiny portion, but you know, can, can a woman even be a doctor of the church? And it's a silly question, but it, it does give us an opportunity to point out that there are there are distinctions, I think, between the intellectual uh, pursuit of theology and and the, and the poetic knowledge that these four women impart to us. They are they are teachers of the heart. And I use that expression poetic knowledge, and I don't know how far I got there, but it's on your it's on your handout. Uh, Thomas Aquinas uses the expression poetica scientia to describe the immediate direct apprehension of reality that inspires wonder and awe. He calls this poetic knowledge. And there's an excellent book by a man named Dr. James Taylor, who was a student of John Seniors, and I, I recommend his, his, his work to you. You can find interviews of his uh, online. Um, but he, he, he says it, poetic knowledge is not a knowledge of poetry, though it is that, but it is a poetic experience of reality. Poetic experience, Dr. Taylor writes, indicates an encounter with reality that is non-analytical, something that is perceived as beautiful, awful, awe-inspiring, spontaneous, mysterious. Poetic knowledge is a spontaneous act of the external and internal senses with the intellect, integrated and whole, rather than an act associated with the powers of analytic reasoning. It is, we might say, knowledge from the inside out, radically different from a knowledge about things. In other words, the opposite of, of scientific knowledge or analytic knowledge. And it is this kind of knowledge that these four ladies give us. Teresa Vavla, Catherine Siena, Teresa Lazou, Hildegard of Bingen. So tonight I'd like to say a few things about each of them. I don't know how far we'll get. Uh, I, I think I, I want to spend the most of the time with with Teresa of Avila. Uh, will we get through all four? Mm, 
who knows, uh, but, but we're going to see. Uh, but as we talk about them, I think that we're going to find some common themes in the lives of these magnificent ladies. And one of them is a constant heart-to-heart communication with God, always communicating with God heart-to-heart, right? Which, interestingly, is uh, from Cardinal Newman, heart speaks to heart. And our friend Bishop Conley has that on his motto, heart speaks to heart. So complete surrender. And this is very much poetic, poetic knowledge. They all provide service to the church in difficult times in the history of the church. Uh, but they do it within the church. They are not Protestants. Okay, so when you read that um, Catherine, because she's scolding the Pope and scolding, you know, is a good word, I think, here, though, with charity and love, uh, or Hildegard of Bingen when she's treating with emperors and bishops and popes, warning them of their vanities, um, or Ter- Teresa of Avila, for example, reforming the Carmelites against a lot of resistance, always within the church and always in obedience. And this is an important lesson, I think, for our time where we don't have to, you know, sugarcoat it. It, the church is in, in a confused time and no small amount of the uh, ambiguity uh, c- comes comes from the Holy See. So uh, they're, they're good examples for being in the church, working for reform within the church and not from without. Uh, they're not feminists. They're, they're not feminists. They're not trying to make it big in a man's world, which is a narrative that you hear. They're loyal daughters of the church. They're loyal daughters of the church. And like last week, all are marked, the lives of all of these women are marked by intense and prolonged suffering and trials. And not just that, but the embracing of suffering and trial. So maybe we'll find some more common uh, realities as, as we go forward. Um, let's start with St. Catherine. I'm going to say very little about her because I have a whole talk on the ICC website about St. Catherine. But I mean, and I think many of you know the story, 14th century, uh, Dyer's daughter from Siena, uh, is born about the same time that the black plague enters the European basin, uh, is, is a devout young lady from the very, very earliest of her life. Her devotion comes from the lives, reading the lives of saints. And by the way, on your handout there, I have a magnificent quote from St. Benedict in this regard, because this is, a, this is a common theme in all of these ladies. At the top of the very first page, uh, I, Pope Benedict XVI said, I did once say to me that art and the saints are the greatest apologetic for our faith. The arguments contributed by reason are unquestionably important and indispensable. This is what we do here at Catholic Answers, right? But there's always dissent somewhere. On the other hand, if we look at the saints, this is a great luminous trail in which God passed through history. They are a force for good, which resists the millennia, truly a light of light. So Catherine is very inspired by reading the lives of the saints. She has a vision of 
our, our Lord at a very er, early age. She practices very severe mortifications uh, as, as a very, very young child. Her parents want her to marry, and why not? Marriage is very important to the social security of Tuscany at this time uh, when things are in such a state of political unrest. So extended family is extremely important. Sigurd Unset explains this quite well in her biography, which I recommended last week. Uh, but she defiantly cuts off her hair, uh, as Rose of Lima would later do, uh, disfigure her face, right? Unwilling to marry. She eventually becomes a Dominican tertiary and treats uh, first uh, the, the, the destitute in the hospital there at Siena, uh, lepers, uh, superannuated prostitutes, uh, people that no one wants to care for, plague victims. Uh, she develops quite a following. She has no formal theological training, and yet her letters uh, and her counsel reflect a profound knowledge of theology. She's examined by a team of Dominicans in Florence who find a pious, faithful, theologically sound girl. Her, uh, her Caterinati, as they are called, her field of followers grows and grows and grows. Uh, and eventually she finds herself corresponding with, with uh, members of the nobility, uh, abbots, abbesses, uh, and in time she resolves uh, internal conflicts among the Tuscan states, Florence, Luca, Pisa, Siena, Milan, which is causing trouble for all of them. And, she, and then she's most famous for her conversations with the Pope, who's where at this time in uh, Avignon, uh, a consequence of uh, the first French Pope from about a century before, a little bit less. And she finally convinces him to come back to come back to Rome. Really short synopsis of St. Catherine. But what I want to highlight, you should, I highly recommend Sigurd Unset's biography of her. But what I want to highlight, and this is a theme that we're going to find in all of these ladies, um, actually is extremely well expressed in the, in the introduction to her dialogue, which, I mean, this is heavy lifting. You have to go a few pages at a time. I've never made my way through the entire thing. I find this mystical writing fascinating and also very, very difficult. I, I was telling a friend when I was preparing for this talk, I need the book called, you know, Mystics for the Non-Mystic or something like that. But in any case, um, uh, Susan Nafke, uh, the nun, the Dominican nun who translated her, her dialogue, which is an important piece of uh, literature because it's written in that, in, that, in that Tuscan dialogue. And by the way, also Catherine, some 300 letters uh, that are very valuable to historians who want to study 14th century Tuscany. But she says in the introduction, let me just read this to you. The balance of contemplation and action in the last 12 years of Catherine's life was not merely a relationship of complementarity. So I had some prayer here, and now I have some action here, right? I'm balancing it in my life. This is not what it was. Catherine did not pray simply to refuel herself for further activity. The principle behind every interpretation that her three years of solitude were a preparation for the years of activity to follow. Nor was prayer an oasis of rest from work, a kind of holy self-indulgence. It was precisely what she experienced in contemplation that impelled her into action. 
And all that she touched, so being before doing, I know I've talked about this in other talks for the ICC. The Christian faith is a faith first of being before doing. Americans especially need to understand this. And all that she touched or was touched by in her activity was present in her prayer. Indeed, in her later years, she was seldom physically alone when she prayed, except in a room at night. And her contemplation on the other hand was so present to her active life that she prayed and even burst into ecstasy within the text of many of her letters. This integration is the characteristic that marks Catherine among the mystics more than any striking quality of her mystical experience as such. Total integration of the active and interior life because of this constant, continuous, uninterrupted, heart speaks to heart conversation with God. And makes her writing so very pertinent today when the interplay between prayer and active ministry is so much at issue. An excellent snapshot of, the, of, the, of the, I think, the most important reality of the life of Catherine, the constant interior life is what equips, sets her up, right, for her, for her, for her active life, for her active life. Much more about St. Catherine on the ICC page in, in my lecture from a number of years ago. Um, Therese of Lisieux, the most recent, uh, excuse me, second most recent to be canonized by John Paul in 1997, John Paul II. Uh, extremely well known to all of you watching. I, I'm sure, born uh, January 2nd, 1873 in Lisieux, which is in the uh, region of Northern France uh, called Calvados. I feel like I should mention this because a really wonderful brandy comes from this region of the world, which is made out of pears and apples. If you've never had Calvados, go splurge on a bottle. It's wonderful. Um, a large family, five of the children uh, join the cloister, four at the same uh, Carmel. Becomes a professed Carmelite, September 24, 1890. She's 15 years old. Uh, excuse me, 1880. She contracts... Shortly thereafter, 1890, she contracts shortly thereafter, 1894, tuberculosis. So within just three, about three, three to four years of joining the, the Carmel, where in large part her duties were menial tasks, cleaning, dusting, mending, working in the sacristy, attending to the novices. She continues at this work. Uh, until the last months of her life, which she spends uh, in the infirmary until her death in 1897. So a very, very short life and a very, very short time in the convent. And yet, maybe the most loved saint of modern time and very famous on her deathbed for saying, I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. And those could have been just words, but the countless miracles uh, as a consequence of her intervention uh, or intercession, I should say, um, show that she's been been true to her word. She's canonized within 28 years of her death. That's pretty fast. Right. Poor Hildegard of Bingen, who we'll come to, 
had to wait many centuries. But she wasn't the longest, by the way. St. Irenaeus, uh, well, he was just named the doctor of the church by Pope Francis. So he had to wait centuries and centuries and centuries. Anyway, she's canonized 28 years after her death, 1925. Her canonization comes about in large part because of whom? Her sister, who by now is Mother Agnes, uh, who writes thousands of letters to uh, Rome uh, advocating for her canonization. Mother Agnes also heavily edits and rewrites and cleans up uh, her famous book, Story of a Soul. Also touches up, has some of the photos uh, cleaned up. It's published in 1956. And it still, of course, even with Mother Agnes's rewriting, um, very much conveys the simple sense of this young lady. No visions, never, no revelations, but in the obscurity of the cloister, in ordinary and in commonplace circumstances, she found all of the material that she needed to build her sanctity and reach perfection. Um, in fact, I, I, of the doctors, of the lady doctors of the church that we're talking about tonight, she's by far the most accessible, at least to me, because her life is just so ordinary. You've all heard the famous phrase, which I quote all the time. I, when I was a father, well, I still am, but my kids are grown out of the house. But I, all the time, there's a soul to be saved in the picking up of a pen, right? I even say it to my staff, died the time. So, uh, you know, anything done for the love of God, right? Uh, she fights uh, pride, uh, neuroses. She has a terrible timidity as a child, uh, breaks into tears, nervous breakdowns, very dark moods. And near the end of her life, without any apparent cause, has uh, profound religious doubts. I think of like uh, uh, Teresa of Calcutta, for example, and much of her suffering, apart from tuberculosis, are just these um, spiritual, these periods of spiritual dryness, which in the main, she just keeps to herself, which I'm sure adds um, to the suffering. This is her suffering. So fun fact about Therese of Lisieux, probably a lot of you have seen this picture of Therese dressed as Joan of Arc, to whom she had a great devotion. It was taken by her sister, Celine. And in fact, uh, Therese of Lisieux wrote a play about Joan of Arc. But, um, but the story has kind of a sad, but I think instructive, um, in instructive uh, backstory to it, if you will. Um, there was, a, there was a, a hater of the Catholic Church at the time who wrote under a pen name, Leo... Taxil. And uh, he wanted to discredit the church uh, and frankly, also masonry. He, um, but he he wrote a, 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 a he published a series of autobiographies of people who had had conversions to the Catholic Church. And the most famous one was a woman named Diane Vaughn. And her, and she she explained her conversion uh, from masonry, from all kinds of dark arts, to Catholicism as a consequence of the intercession of Joan of Arc. And the book made its way into the convent, and Therese was very taken with this because she had 
such a love of uh, St. Joan. So Therese sent this picture to Diana Vaughn uh, with a letter. Um, and uh, and Diana Vaughn uh, uh, allegedly wrote or wrote 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 her a letter back. Well, uh, shortly thereafter, Leo Taxil and the man's actual name I've forgotten and I didn't write it down, but you can look it up. Um, held a public conference in which he said uh, all of these autobiographies that I've written are complete hoaxes, and I wrote them and published them to expose you know the kooky people. Uh, in the in the Catholic Church, and uh, and then by the way, he was not well received having done this, and he had to move away from Paris. He died in 1907 of some cause, and we don't know what it is. But this really broke uh, Therese's heart. She she and and all of us have had, I think, some kind of experience like this, where you know we were all in uh, on something, and uh, and then our naivete or our generosity, or our goodwill, whatever it is, was was really kind of thrown back at us. Um, and if you experience that or have experienced that, you know know that Therese of Lisieux has, um, and she consecrated this suffering uh, to to our Lord, to our Lord. Um, I think that's a part of the, the, the Joan photograph. I have this in my office on the, on the wall there. I took it down. Um, because of my devotion to both these ladies, but um, I only recently uh, learned that story. Um, let me just finish up with Therese of Lisieux, central to her thoughts, uh, love of neighbor out of love of God. And um, some of you will, will know uh, that during his very, very short reign, um, John Paul I... So what, five weeks? I, I recommend this book to you very much. It's called Illustrissimi. Uh, and they're letters that John Paul I wrote to all kinds of characters, Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, you know, people who were dead, some fictional characters. He has a letter here to Pinocchio that's very charming, G.K. Chesterton. He has one to uh, Therese of Lisieux. And in his letter to Therese of Lisieux, he tells a story that was told to him by a man named Archbishop Perini. I don't know who Archbishop Perini is, but it's a beautiful story. And I want to tell it to you. A young man knocks one evening at the door of a house. He is wearing his best suit, a flower in his buttonhole. But inside him, his heart is pounding. How will his girl and her family receive the marriage proposal that he is shyly coming to make? The girl comes to open the door in person, one glance and the young lady's blush, her obvious pleasure reassures him. His heart swells. He enters and the girl's mother is there. She seems to be a likable lady. He actually feels like giving her a hug. The father is there too. The boy has met him a hundred times, but tonight the man seems transfigured by a special light. Later, the girl's two brothers arrive. There are embraces and warm greetings. Bishop Pernini asks himself, what is happening in this young man? What are all these loves that have suddenly sprouted like mushrooms? 
The answer, these are not several loves, but a single love. He loves the girl and the love he feels for her is extended to all of her family. Anyone who truly loves Christ cannot refuse to love mankind for all are Christ's brothers. Even if they are ugly or bad or boring, love transfigures them all. And John Paul II says to Therese of Lisieux, this is, this is an example. This is an example of your love. And I would recommend to you, and then we'll move on also with Therese of Lisieux, this excellent little collection of sermons, I Believe in Love, Sophia Press came out with it, I don't know, back in 97 or something. Father Jean Delby, a French priest, he gave a number of conferences on Therese of Lisieux. One's on the Eucharist, uh, one is on the Apostolate, and this one is from his conference on uh, love, fraternal charity. Little Therese wrote, when I want to increase in myself my love of neighbor, especially when the devil tries to put before the eyes of my soul the faults of this or that sister who is less appealing to me, I hasten to seek out her virtues, her good desires. I tell myself that if I have seen her fall one time, she may well have undergone a great many victories that she hides through humility. And that even what appears as a fault to me could very well be an act of virtue because of the intention. Ah, I understand now that perfect charity consists of enduring the faults of others, of not being at all astonished at their weaknesses, of being edified by the smallest acts of virtue, which one sees them practice. What great counsel from the little flower. Okay, very good. So we'll proceed. Hildegard of Bingen, uh, named a doctor of the church very recently, 2015, by, by her fellow German. Um, really, what we know of Hildegard has come back to our knowledge in the, uh, out of a lot of research that was, that's been done in the, in, the, in the 19th and 20th century. But by way of example, uh, so here is a Lives of Saints that was, it's just, it's alphabetical, um, that uh, a friend of mine gave me a number of years ago. It's, it's, it's actually an excellent reference. It was published in 1956. This is the first edition. And, uh, you know, it has contributors like Evelyn Waugh and um, Arnold Lunn and Alan Price Jones. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, but, but here is the entry on Hildegard. It's about eight lines. Builder and abbess of the Benedictine Monastery of Rupertsburg near Bingen on the Rhine, Hildegard was one of the most striking characters produced by the 12th century and a very remarkable woman. So I laugh at this because, all right, well, if that's so, ought we not have another couple of pages dedicated to her? But you can see that learning is, was still underway, even in 1956, about this magnificent saint. So let me just say a couple of quick things. Uh, born in 1098, 
in Buckelheim, about 50 miles west of what is today Frankfurt. She was called the Sybil of the Rhine. Uh, she took the veil at 15 years of age under the care of a blessed Juta. Uh, the monastery followed the rule of Benedict. She became quite good at Latin, but also not just Latin, music uh, and the domestic arts. Uh, as you'll see, she becomes a very accomplished composer and writer. Um, she has visions from a fairly early age, from her teenage years. These visions cover topics such as the charity of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, heaven, hell, the devil. She eventually confides these visions to her confessor. He tells her to write them down. Uh, they are reviewed by the bishop who decides these are, in fact, visions from God. A secretary is appointed to her to take dictation. Uh, and she writes a number of books. Most famous is her Scivias Nosevius Domini, uh, Knowledge of the Way of God. Uh, she describes at one point um, a shaft of light uh, that gives her a, a knowledge. Um, I think I, I actually have her account here. A shaft of light of dazzling brilliancy came from the open evidence pierced my mind in my heart like a flame that warms without burning as the sun heats by its rays. And suddenly I knew and understood the explanation of the Psalms, the Gospels, and all the other Catholic books of the Old and New Testament, but not the interpretation of the text of the words or the division of the syllables or the cases and the tenses. So she had, she had a kind of infused knowledge, but it was this knowledge that I'm talking about, sort of an infused poetic knowledge, right? Uh, not so much an analytical knowledge of the text, but an experiential knowledge of them, okay? Uh, the, and then she goes on to write about, in her Sivius, the relationship between God and man, creation, redemption, the church, and then also uh, uh, apocalyptic prophecies, and also warnings to people currently alive for their uh, irresolute behavior. Uh, Pope Eugenius appoints theologians, including Bernard of Clairvaux. They give their approval. Uh, Hildegard writes to Eugenius and warns him against his own political ambitions. By now, she is abbess and her community is expanding. And as we'll see with Teresa of Avila, she gets enemies as a consequence. And so she's plagued by enemies who say uh, unkind things about her, who attempt to thwart her efforts of expansion, accuse her of being a fraud, pursuing her own vanity. And she also is suffering at this time from very ill health. So a, a common theme that we see in the life of uh, Therese, for example, um, and, in, and in Catherine, though much of her suffering was imposed by, you know, uh, horrible fasts. But we'll, we'll also see this in, in Therese of Avila, all plagued by ill health. Um, she goes to Bingen on the Rhine, establishes uh, a convent there where she writes uh, many, many extraordinary sacred musical compositions. Probably the first medieval mystery play, um, many, many allegorical homilies. Uh, but she also uh, writes extensively in botany. She's a real polymath. Uh, botany, um, homeopathy, or medicine, the medicine of the time. 
Um, and also, by the way, brewing beer. Now, it depends who you read on this. So fun fact on uh, Hildegard. Um, it depends who you read on this, but there is it, certainly she wasn't the first person to use hops in brewing. There's certainly evidence of that going back to Samaria uh, and at least the sixth century. But this is the ear earliest text, extant text that talks about using hops and brewing. And, and one account goes that she's driven to use hops in brewing, she says, because of the uh, because of their own bitterness, but also hops stop putrefaction when put in beer and may be added so that beer lasts much longer. So they, they function as a preservative. But one story goes that she uses hops in brewing because uh, there's no tax on hops and other bittering agents there was an extensive tax on. Uh, she has a massive correspondence to, like St. Catherine, here's another parallel, to princes, emperors, uh, kings. She writes Henry II of England, who, of course, is responsible for the death of whom? Uh, Thomas Becket. Um, bishops and abbots. And a lot of it is scolding, so like St. Catherine, uh, but in a charitable way, warning them that their uh, irresolute behavior, their failure to live up to their office is going to bring about uh, some uh, scourges. Also to the clergy of Cologne, she writes about their carelessness, uh, their, their avariceness. She has, uh, she, again, these warnings make her uh, ex extensive enemies, and yet she persists, uh, not only with the bodily suffering, but her unpopularity through all of it, through all of it. Why? Because she has this constant, like Catherine, like Therese of Luzou, constant communication, heart-to-heart -heart conversation of God, this poetic, this experiential knowledge of God. I'll close Hildegard here with a vision that she has of the fall of the angels, which is uh, worthy of Dante. I saw a great star, most splendid and beautiful, and with it a great multitude of falling sparks, which followed it southward. And they looked on him upon his throne as it were something hostile, and turning from him, they sought rather the north. And suddenly, they were all annihilated and turned into black coals and cast into the abyss so that I could see them no more. As I say, Pope Benedict uh, named her a doctor of the church in 2015. And when he did, he wrote, in St. Hildegard of Bingen, there is a wonderful harmony between teaching and daily life. So we see a parallel here with Teresa Luzio. In her, the search for God's will and the imitation of Christ was expressed in the constant practice of virtue, which she exercised with supreme generosity and which she nourished from biblical, liturgical and patristic roots in light of the rule of St. Benedict. So obedience, her persevering practice of obedience, simplicity, charity and hospitality was especially visible in her desire to belong completely to the Lord. This Benedictine abbess was able to bring together rare human gifts, keen intelligence, and ability to penetrate heavenly realities. So it is from this interior disposition of meditating on sacred scripture, from following the rule, from sanctifying the activity of daily life, 
So it's from this interior disposition that then she is able to make her public action. So we see parallels here in the life of St. Catherine. Hildegard, Pope Benedict writes, also saw contradictions in the lives of individual members of the faithful and reported the most deplorable situations. She emphasized in particular that individualism in doctrine and in practice on the part of both lay people and ordained ministers is an expression, is an expression of pride and constitutes the main obstacle to the church's evangelization mission to non-Christians. I think of this line, especially in the work of, for example, uh, priests like Father James Martin, who are just kind of very thinly veiling. They are very, very careful to sort of thinly veil their, their heterodoxy, right? Out of, I mean, I don't know Father Martin's heart, but St. Hildegard may well say to him, this is an expression of your pride, not submitting to the teaching of the church. And it's a scandal to non-Christians. And I can tell you, my friends, we get calls like this to the radio program where uh, people will say, I'm thinking of joining the Catholic faith. I want to become a Catholic, but the Catholic Church seems to be in so much of a state of confusion right now. What do I do? So, and then Benedict goes on. One of the salient points of Hildegard's magisterium was her heartfelt exhortation, exhortation to do virtuous life addressed to consecrated men and women. Her understanding of the consecrated life is a true theological metaphysics because it is firmly rooted in the theological virtue of faith, faith first, which is the source and constant impulse to full commitment in obedience, poverty, and chastity. In living out the evangelical counsels, poverty, chastity, obedience, the consecrated person shares in the experience of Christ, poor, chaste, and obedient, and follows in his footsteps in daily life. This is fundamental to the consecrated life. All right. That's Hildegard thing. And so we're seeing common themes in all these. Uh, so Teresa of Avila, uh, been a doctor of the church, as I say, for one week longer than Catherine of Siena, uh, even though Catherine was two centuries older. Uh, Irenaeus, as I said, had to wait 18 centuries to be named a doctor of the church just this year by Pope Francis. Um, on your handout there, I explain what a doctor of the church is. I use uh, Father Hardin's uh, definition. Uh, so Teresa of Avila is born uh, in 1515, 23 uh, years earlier. Columbus uh, sailed for the New World. Two years after Teresa's birth, uh, Cortez lands in Mexico. So, uh, and, and, and in fact, she has two brothers who will serve with uh, Pizarro in the conquest of Peru. Uh, but this is the world in which Teresa, in the way that, for example, Catherine lives in the world of the Avignon papacy and then the Western schism. Uh, Teresa of Avila lives in the world of the 16th century, um, which is afflicted with the uh, Protestant uh, or the uh, Protestant rebellion, um, what historians call the Protestant Reformation, um, but also the discovery of the new world and also the West's conflicts with Islam, 1571, Battle of Lepanto. A lot of us know uh, Teresa of Avila through her, um, through her very famous statue there at uh, 
Santa Maria della Vittoria uh, of her transverberation, the scene that she describes in her life uh, of the angel piercing her heart. Um, and we'll talk about that. The statue is magnificent. It's one of my favorites. It's exquisite. I love Bernini. But, you know, it is undeniably unsettling. It has a kind of erotic um, quality to it. Uh, and I think it th this points to uh, some of the problems with hagiography generally, which I think, for example, Sigurd Unset overcomes well in her biography of Catherine of Siena. But sometimes with hagiography, we get such an effort to give us the holiness of the saint that we don't get the fullness of a human person. Um, and I think that we can actually get at that quite well with uh, Teresa of Avila. She's born uh, in the Castilian mountains. It's a hard uh, area, not real fertile, cold in the winter up in the mountains, about 70 miles uh, west of Madrid. Um, a noble family, but a kind of a new noble family that is merchants who make good marriages. Columbus did this and then uh, continue to make good marriages and then find their way up the noble class. She wants to be martyred as a child. She and her brother Rodrigo run away from home, hoping to get martyred by the Moors. Uh, her, her, uncle, her uncle finds them, brings them home. Um, I think we could divide her life kind of into three parts. The first part, until she's 20, she's, she's very much... Um, uh, she's 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 quite religious and quite serious about religion, but she's also quite serious about society, and she loves the romance novels. So here, when we say romance, we mean the kinds of books that Cervantes and I know Sean Fitzpatrick just did a ma magnificent job with Cervantes for you that Cervantes uh, makes fun of in, uh, in 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 Don Quixote. But she imagines herself as one of these tragic ladies in these romantic uh, stories. Um, but she's also uh, quite interested in the lives of saints, like uh, Catherine of Siena was. And we could say that she was very much a product of these two favorite literary genres of hers. Um, but she admits that she was uh, unserious in, in her youth. And I think I may have even provided a, uh, a yeah, a, a, a Therese with Avila on her youth, uh, that, that the effect that these, and you can read it, the effect that these romances had on her otherwise uh, good desires. And she spent a lot of time with her hair and made sure that her hands were well manicured. And she was a gregarious young lady and she loved, uh, she loved society and she loved social conversation. She's plagued by a series of illnesses. Another common theme here intense suffering, uh, and we think maybe malignant malaria, uh, but her suffering is exacerbated doubtless by uh, a kind of psychosomatic quality to it. Um, her interior anxieties exacerbate her physical suffering. During these illnesses, she discerns for the Carmelites, uh, and she joins the Carmel of the Incarnation uh, for 20 years. So I would say this would be like the second part of her life. She lives outside the walls of Avila. Um, and yeah, by the way, if you look at images of Avila, many of the city walls 
are 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 still there. Um, but this Carmel is not serious, right? So a quick word about the Carmelites. Their origins are, you know, sort of shrouded in legend, but we do know in the in the Holy Land and even into the Old Testament, some would argue, uh, certainly that's the way a Carmelite would tell it. Uh, we do know that their rule comes from um, about 1206 to 1214 when it was written by St. Albert. Uh, and in the, the rule is very simple. There's a lot of time, common property, poverty, obedience, of course, serious poverty, uh, and a lot of time devoted to mental prayer, a lot of time devoted to mental prayer. But the rule is not being followed very attentively at the Carmel of the Incarnation. And the parlor there is a very social place. And uh, there's these things that don't translate well. Uh, Galentios de Monjas that go on there. And probably the best way we could describe it is courtship of nuns. And this sounds a little bit strange, but it would be conversations with, with men from the noble or the upper class coming in to have, you know, chaste or sort of chaste conversations with nuns in the parlor, but all under the guise of like, you know, intellectual and good conversation, right? So a serious um, threat to the vow of, uh, of a nun. She abandons as a consequence of these conversations her practice of mental prayer, so essential to the Carmelite life. And she finds that she has a very divided heart. Uh, and she has two patrons that she thinks on uh, who, who, who have this divided heart, Mary Magdalene or had and St. Augustine. Right. But her third part of her life really begins at about the age of 40. In 1554, she has a vision of the wounded Christ. And it's more than a vision. She writes, I felt that he was within me or that I was totally engulfed by him. And in the course of this conversation, our Lord says to her, uh, I will not have you hold conversations with men, but with angels. And she has a series following this of interior communications and consolations and locutions and visions, whatever you want to call them. But this is what Teresa said of them. She said they, had a, they, they were much more clear. They had a perfect clarity to them, much more clear than ordinary human speech, consolations, rapture, spiritual spousals, mystical marriages, and eventually this transverberation, this transverberatio of the heart, which is depicted in the Bernini statue. And I don't know if I, if I, if I put it on, she gives an account of it there. Yeah. And I won't read it all in the interest of time, but you can read it. Um, but she's, you know, she says, up to this point, I had seen angels, but not in this way, uh, not so clearly, not so clearly formed. And she describes the angel with the tip of the spear, driving it into her heart and taking it out and driving in and into her entrails, she says, driving it in and taking it out. The pain is not bodily, but spiritual, though the body has its share in it, even a large one. It is a caressing of love so sweet, which now takes place between the soul and God that I pray God of his goodness to make him experience who may think that I'm lying. So she has this uh, uh, transverberation and this really gets underway the third and most fruitful 
uh, period of her life. But it's important to say here, like uh, Catherine, like Hildegard, like Therese, that in the fullness of all these spiritual espousals, she submits all of this to the direction of her confessor, to the direction of her spiritual director, to the authority of the church. Even on occasions where God is telling her to do one thing, she follows the direction of her confessor, right? There's a virtue in that. So the third period of her life is underway, a third period of intense and austere form of the Carmelite order. And here she gets, now she runs into the resistance. And many of you know the story, but her object is to, she said, you know, the, 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 the convent of the incarnation had 120 women. And she, she's, she's got this great wit about her. She says, this is just way too many women in one place. And we all know what that's like. And that's not me saying that, that's Teresa of Avila. And she says, you know, you get too many women together and, and, you're, and, and it's not going to be good. So she wants to found much smaller convents of 20, no more than 21. Uh, and, and, and they aren't going to wear shoes. So the discalced Carmelites. Now, eventually she makes a compromise and they can wear sandals. It is cold in parts of Spain. Um, but here they lead, live lives of true poverty, property in common. And, um, and, and of course, she's very famous for her interior castle, for her way of perfection, for her letters. But she's also famous for writing a book called Her Foundation. And the foundation is a book that she wrote for her nuns. And it is a, a, a describing the action of founding what I think were some 17 or 18 uh, convents um, dur during this period, and I think that it is in in this book in the in in the foundation that we get a real good sense of Teresa, the person. And I wanted to read several to you, but I'm just going to read one, which I think just illustrates what a human person she was, but also how all in as a saint she was. So they are setting up uh, a convent in a town called Medina de Campo. And uh, everyone thinks this project is a great folly. And, and like I say, as, as I'm sure all of you know, um, her, her reform of the Carmelites is met with a great deal of resistance from within the order, from the Inquisition. Uh, she, she eventually gets the help that she needed uh, in the form of John of the Cross, of course. But, you know, he's ex excommunicated and imprisoned by his own order for something like nine months. So a lot of resistance, in addition to the physical suffering, a lot of resistance from within the institutional church. Uh, so everyone is saying this project is going to be a big folly, and they want to come in and set this convent up in the middle of the night so that it's all set up so that by the morning... Uh, they're underway. We arrived at midnight and alighted at St. Anne's so as not to make any noise and went on foot to the house. It was just the time when the bulls, which were to fight the next day, were being driven to the enclosure. And it was a great mercy that some of them did not toss us. Uh, so they, they go into the uh, patio 
And the, the, there's a local Carmelite prior there who says, you know, this part of the house could be adapted as a chapel. And it, apparently it's a complete mess. The walls look to me very ruinous, uh, but not as bad uh, by daylight as I afterwards saw them. So it's the middle of the night. And they're trying to set up a chapel. The Lord seems to have been pleased to blind that good father so that he could not see how unfit it was to place the blessed sacrament there. And this is a theme in Teresa's writings. She uh, she says the Lord is always on the side of the reckless. Um, so I went to see the entrance. There was a good deal of earth to be shoveled out. It had an open roof. The walls were unplastered, so bare stone. The night was short, and we had only brought with us a few hangings. I would think she means her tapestries or something to decorate the chapel with. I think three, which were not nearly enough to cover the length of the entrance, and I did not know what to do for it, so I was not fit to set an altar there. It pleased the Lord, for he desired that it should be done at once, that the lady's steward had in his house a great deal of tapestry of hers and some blue damask bed hangings, and she had told him to give us anything we wanted, for she was very, very good. When I saw such good furnishings, I gave praise to the Lord and so did the other. So God provides. We did not know what to do for nails, nor could we buy any at that hour, but we hunted in the walls. And it, and so she's pulling nails out of the walls so she can hang these tapestries in the, this makeshift chapel. We hunted in the walls, and at last, with a good deal of trouble, we found plenty. Some, I mean, any one of us would have said, forget this, we'll just sort it out in the morning. Some put up the hangings, we nuns cleaned the floor, and we worked with such a will that when the morning dawned, the, dawn, the altar was set up, and the little bell in the passage, and mass was set at once. Up to this time, I was very happy, for it was my greatest pleasure to see one more church where the blessed sacrament was reserved. So here's just a little snapshot of just the kind of the nuts and bolts of a very real uh, woman with um, indomitable courage and drive. But why? Because of this constant interior conversation with God. Um, and and uh, I think if you, I mean, I, I recommend to you the interior castle and the way of perfection. Uh, I, I, I think all those are, are very, very heavy lifting. Um, like I say, I need uh, mystics for the non-mystic. But if you can if you can get a copy of the foundation, you will get a very, very good sense of just that. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful thing for someone like me who likes stories and wants to get a good sense of the time and the actual person of uh, Teresa of Avila. And, and it, it's full of just really, really delightful anecdotes like that, that Reveal, reveal the three dimensions, the fullness of, of the, uh, of the character. That was a that was a stupendous presentation. You you really did pack a lot in, even though it was a whirlwind tour through these. What was it? Five, uh, five women. This even four of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, Chris. I have already a couple of questions, so we'll just, let's just move quickly through a couple of these, and uh, we'll close it out through the evening or for the evening. Um, Going back when, when somebody's writing in, going back to how you opened tonight's talk, how should married men and women take the example 
of these remarkable women into our own lives. Um, you had this great principle. How, how do you focus on being overdoing uh, if we're not nuns like each of these examples that you just gave us? I'm going to tell you one thing. I could tell you several things to do, but one thing I strongly encourage people ask me from time to time about my faith journey and that sort of thing. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm like when people ask me that question, I'd say I'm still packing. Uh, but um, but I can tell you something that has been transformative in my life as a father and as a husband and as the president of an apostolate and just in the last five, six years. And it's the regular practice of lauds and vespers. And and this is how you imitate the, the life of, of the cloister. And we use here. Oh, uh, darn, I thought I had one. Well, they're all in the chapel. We use here the Mundelein Psalter, um, which is very good translation. And it's just Lauds and Vespers. Uh, it follows the new calendar. Um, if you if you want to follow the old calendar, that is quite a bit more involved. But uh, uh, I strongly recommend the practice of Lauds and Vespers and uh do it with your spouse or do it with uh, a, a group of uh, other uh, married couples or maybe at the office if it's appropriate. I mean, obviously, Catholic Answers, that's easy. We have a chapel and we're, we're all working for the church here. So I, 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 so in other people's lives, it can be a more a more difficult thing. But find a group of people that you could do it with, uh, even if you did it once a week and, you, and then you got up to every day. It will it will change your life. People say things change your life. Praying lauds and vespers will change your life, and it will it will begin that that heart to heart conversation with God, because that because it's all the Psalms, and that's what King David had that heart to heart conversation with God. Now, of course, he strayed from, it, but uh, uh, and then he returns to it. But yeah, pray lauds and vespers. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Great question. Beautiful, beautiful that you're able to do that at the office. But uh, oh, it's a great but we all have opportunities to bring it into our life. Like, yeah, even if you can't do it at work, you know, at home, set a, setting aside some time. That's a, yeah, that's a great, uh, great answer. Thank I mean, you. the rosary, the rosary actually evolves out of the office. Uh, I, I'm not telling you to stop saying the rosary, but the, but, you know, you look at, for example, like the rule of the Templars, for example, where where their office is is constricted considerably because they have to train for war. Um, so in, in, in light uh, or in lieu of uh, a lot of the a lot of the hours of the office, they're just knocking out some aves and some pateres. And really, the, the rosary kind of finds its way into a practice in this way. I think that's the anthropology of the rosary. Um, but uh, but start saying the office. This is a fun one, uh, Chris. Maybe we can we can close just with this one. Uh, who do you think will be the next female doctor? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the obvious choice would be Edith Stein, right? I, you know, I, I, who, who, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe it's someone we have not heard, of, like Hildegard of Bingen. Um, so I have a question for the group, and many of you have heard the story of uh, Teresa of Avila, and it's rendered several different ways, where on, on, on one of her uh, excursions or, or foundings of a monastery 
or convent, excuse me. Uh, she's traveling and it, and it comes in different form. Uh, she's crossing the river and the carriage is overturned or she's climbing up the side of a hill and she slips back down into the mud and or, or whatever it is. But she finds herself, you know, seated in the mud or in the water or both. And she says to our Lord, and this isn't this is believable because she has examples of wit like this. So there, there is a case where where she was walking around barefoot and this fellow who uh, should never have said anything like this to her says, Teresa, you, you have such beautiful feet. Uh, and she says, well, take a good look at them because you're never going to see them again. So anyway, um, so she has a kind of a wit about her. But uh, but anyway, so there she is. She's sitting in the mud or the water. Her efforts, her, her travel efforts toward it, however, it happens. And she says to our Lord, Lord, uh, why would you why would you treat your friend like this? And our Lord says to her, well, this is how I treat all of my friends. And she says, well, it's a wonder you have so few. So now I think this is uh, this. I think this is a believable, but I think it's an apocryphal story. I have not read the whole of the foundation, which is where I think you might find it. But if one of you can actually find me the oldest place I've been able to find it furthest back is in a French uh, biography written in like the late 19th century, early 20th century, something like that. So the story is more than 100 years old. But if it's actually a story that she tells, I've not found the source. And if somebody knows it, I'd like to see it. If anybody on the top of their head, I mean, if you're on the panel here, just chime in. But if you are behind the scenes here, chatted in, I mean, maybe we could crowdsource this a little bit. If somebody, you know, is reading the foundations uh, and just wants to email us at the Institute, I'd, I'd pass that along to you. We yeah, can if, get if somebody, I think, I think it does fall under that, what the saints never said, like St. <laughs> Francis preach the gospel, use words if necessary. He, he never, he never said anything like that. Not, not even remotely, <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, um, yeah. So if anybody finds that. Teresa Cotter writes in the chat, she's going to check, um, but she's sure this happened. So, so let's Teresa, okay, good. Us. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can get a good source on it. Yeah. Super fun. Well, thank know. you, Chris. Yeah, we'll wrap up here. And uh, I just want to thank you for uh, for this series. Um, if any of you missed the first part of this and just joined us for tonight, that's that uh, recording is posted on our website. Um, and this one will be as well. If you want to go back and review or share with friends uh, and family or anybody who might uh, benefit from being introduced to some of these wonderful women uh, in the community of saints. Thank you, Chris. Uh, could you close us in prayer this evening? Absolutely. Uh, well, let's pray, pray to our, our, our Lady. Remember, O Most Holy Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To thee do we come, before thee we stand simple and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer us. Amen. St. Therese, St. Teresa, St. Catherine, St. Hildegard, pray for us.
We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.